Last week, we studied Acts 9, 10 to 25. We learned some extraordinary things. We were introduced to Ananias, and we saw Saul, Saul get his sight back and, and enjoy fellowship, and he was baptized and you know, entered into this fellowship in that particular area and engaged the Hellenistic Jews with the gospel in their own synagogues and all of these marvelous things. And I would always encourage you, if you weren't here with us and did not catch the sermon, to, to go to our website and to listen there, and that you know you can get the transcripts if you want to get the notes and the sermon notes and all that. It's all there for you. And so with that being said, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time reflecting on where we were, but you can always go there and get the resource um, at our website. Now, this morning we're going to camp out at Acts 9.26. I had every intention of taking us further, um, but I found that I'd written six, almost seven pages on verse 26, and, uh, and I thought, I don't know if this congregation will be able to endure another hour and 25-minute sermon, which I do periodically, that just, uh, I don't know, I, I could tell you, I could just sit up here and talk all day. Preachers can do that, you know, but so often we don't consider how not comfortable the chairs might be or how you have other things that you have to get to, and so... I decided to cut it short and just stop at 26, but I do have uh, a lot to, to say about it today. It's a, it's a very loaded verse, and uh, I'm really excited about that today. And also, a little trepidatious in that handling the Word of God and, and dividing it is... just comes with uh, some pressure, and, uh, and I'm glad. I think all too often men are coming to the Word of God very haphazardly and handling it very flippantly, and I can say that I've done my share of that through all the years that I've been preaching. may not be so today. So, I will read 926, and I will pray once more, and then we'll examine and apply it. Sound good? Do we have an alert church this morning? <laughs> I think that's a yes. And, and we're not too distracted by the, uh, the rain. Yeah, I guess we have a leak. You never know about those things until God goes for the second flood. That figures. Yeah, well, you know. Oh, it's coming down right here, too. Maybe it'll cool me off. You guys are ready to go? Praise the Lord. Let's, let's do it. 926. <clears throat> and the word of God says, And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. Father, the implications of that verse are uh, quite staggering, all of the different ways that it can be applied uh, or interpreted, I should say. We know clearly, I think, from the context what it means, but just the implications of it are, are quite vast. And Lord, as we 
come to you now into your presence. We've been in your presence here, but as we begin to uh, sit quietly and humbly in your presence as you present, God, open our hearts and minds to you. Uh, I love the fact, Lord, that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and that you use it uh, at all moments to, um, to reach the lost to prepare the saints for the ministry of the gospel. God, to accomplish your purposes because it says so clearly that it never returns void. May it be your word that is proclaimed this morning, Lord, not man's word, not mere opinion or any of those things. Speak to us now in this moment. Help us to not be distracted to focus on you, and to enjoy your word and your presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, verse 26. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Get your note writing hand and note sheets ready. After Saul fled from Damascus, he went to Jerusalem and he found himself in a difficult position. And we know from last week's sermon and from the text that we studied that he was in a difficult position in Damascus, that there was a bit of an uprising by the Hellenists against him. He was proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, which is the most offensive uh, doctrinal, Christian doctrinal truth to the Jew, to the half-Jew, the Hellenist, um, probably the most offensive doctrinal truth to, to, to most, if not all, people. And so there had been quite a little uprising happening back in Damascus where he had begun his preaching ministry, and he had to flee, and so he comes to Jerusalem, the place in which he had left previously, and he found himself in an, a difficult position. Um, as a newer Christian, I suppose we would call him, he attempted to join the disciples there in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, if you will, but they rejected him. The disciples, it says in the text, did not believe he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Saul must have seemed like the quintessential wolf in sheep's clothing to them. They must have thought that he was attempting to join the church so that he could destroy it from within. We have seen several attempts at this with Simon the magician and with Ananias and Sapphira who I believe were true believers, but who had, uh, you know, desired the prestige of life, the temporal um, popularity in those things over the things of God and lied to the Holy Spirit, and God disciplined them and brought them home so they could not corrupt the church. So we have seen some of these instances um, in the scripture and in our passages and so I think that these Jerusalem believers may have interpreted him as being like Simon the Magician or Ananias and Sapphira. We need to protect the church from him. 
They thought that maybe he was trying to come in to destroy it from within, and he had quite the reputation. And so in some ways, their fear was justifiable. So they took no chances and turned him away. The fellowship he enjoyed in Damascus was withheld from him at Jerusalem. How sad. F.F. Bruce wrote that we can tentatively date Saul's conversion to A.D. 33 and his return to Jerusalem sometime in A.D. 35. This would mean that Saul may have spent about two years fellowshipping and preaching the gospel in Damascus before going back to Jerusalem. Now, Bruce's insight inspired me to look a little further into this. I was led to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, the passage that we had just heard read by Dan. And in that passage, it says that Saul left Damascus for Arabia and then returned to Damascus and then went to Jerusalem three years later. With that being said, it would appear that the biblical chronology would be as follows from the beginning of A.D. 33 to the end of A.D. 35, approximately three years. Saul left Jerusalem to bind Christians in Damascus. Saul got saved on the Damascus road, illuminated, brought to life. Saul entered Damascus. Saul received back his sight, was filled with the Spirit, and fellowship, was baptized and fellowship with other believers, those Damascus believers. Saul preached the gospel in Damascus synagogues. Hellenistic Jews began to be stirred up. Saul left Damascus to go to Arabia to confer with the Lord. What he says in that text that Dan just read, he went to spend time with Jesus. Have you ever wondered how he would always say in his epistles in these things, I got this from the Lord, I got this from the Lord, I got this from the Lord. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. Not to go out and maybe to engage in more ministry in these places like Arabia, maybe he did, but to spend time with Jesus, to ponder Christ. And so he went to Arabia to confer with the Lord, and then Saul returned to Damascus to preach the gospel in synagogues again, and then persecution and death threats arose against Saul, and he fled the city. And then Saul returned to Jerusalem. From the moment he left Jerusalem to bind Christians, from the moment that he returned was about three years, as he has said. Now, here's what's amazing to me about this. How is it that after three years, or how is it that three years later, the church at Jerusalem didn't believe Saul was a true follower of Jesus Christ? Did they not hear about his conversion? Did they not hear about his ministry? I think that they heard about both. Let me give you two possible ways that they may have heard the news. Saul had been saved and blinded while in the presence of co-persecutors. We read about this not long ago. These co-persecutors were men that accompanied him on his mission to bind Christians in Damascus. What happened to those men? Did they get saved alongside of Saul and remain with him in Damascus? Or did they return to the Sanhedrin at Jerusalem to report what happened? If they had been saved and remained with Saul, you would think that our author, Luke, who was a great historian, would have noted something about that. Luke was a thorough 
thorough historian. Luke especially enjoyed writing down the salvation accounts of others. If the co-persecutors returned to inform the Sanhedrin about Saul's change, the church would have probably heard the news as well. The Sanhedrin watched the church, persecuted the church, and the church watched the Sanhedrin. What about the lines of communication that existed between the church at Jerusalem and the Christians from other regions? All those scattered Christians and Christians that somehow, we don't know how, just popped up in Damascus. They didn't flee Jerusalem at the persecution. How about all those Christians that were in other places? What about that communication that seems to have existed between the church at Jerusalem and those Christians in all those other regions? We've seen two examples of this communication in the book of Acts so far, have we not? The first example is the Samaritan example. Somehow the apostles heard about the revival that broke out in Samaria. They heard about Philip's ministry, his gospel preaching, and how the Samaritans were getting saved in droves. When they received the report, because of communication, they sent Peter and John to assist Philip and to lay their hands on the new believers to give them the Holy Spirit. The second example is the example of Ananias. Prior to Saul's conversion, Ananias had, or I guess this would be the third example or the second example of communication, but prior to Saul's conversion, Ananias had somehow heard about Saul's plans to bind Christians in Damascus. Ananias had even heard about how Saul obtained official documents from the Sanhedrin. Ananias was prepared for Saul to come in and to enter into and to disturb the church. How? Because the Christians at Jerusalem were communicating with the Christians in Damascus. Based on these rock-solid examples, I think it's fair to assume that the Jerusalem Christians were fully aware of Saul's conversion and ministry. What then held them back? What prevented them from accepting and receiving Saul? The answer is fear. Verse 26 says, they were afraid of him. Now, I would like to really flush this out, but I'd like to take a moment to point out, by flushing it out, to point out some things about fear. Okay, first off, fear can be a good thing when it's in its proper place. Examples. Fear of God. When we ponder God, our ponderings should be accompanied by a form of fear known as reverence. Reverence is basically a profound sense of awe and respect. God should be approached in this manner. God is holy. God is all-knowing, God is all-present, God is all-powerful, God created the universe with spoken words, God whipped man together from the dust and blew the breath of life into his nostrils. According to the Old Testament, when God makes war against his enemies, he crushes them by the tens of thousands like ants. There are a multitude of biblical examples that should generate within us Fear of God, reverence for God, and not just based upon the judgment and wrath 
but based upon who he is. And yet, we tend to come to God haphazardly and even flippantly. We tend to believe that because of Jesus, we can come to God however we please. This is not true. Ponder this. If a judge in our court system gave you clemency rather than justice, would you respond to him flippantly or in a way that would diminish his honor and position? Certainly not. You would either thank him respectfully or stand there in silent awe. It should be the same with God. Even though God granted us freedom from the bondage of sin and death and from judgment through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't approach him haphazardly or flippantly. We should never come to him in a way that seems to diminish his holiness, honor, glory, and position. We should always come to him in humility that has been seasoned by or with reverence and fear Always remember this, church. Jesus didn't change God. He simply gave us access to him. And so often I hear from pulpits and from Christians that somehow God was mean and ticked off in the Old Testament, and Jesus came and changed him. He just did something to him that has caused God not to be mad. Not to be vengeful, not to be mean. It is not true. Jesus did not change God. God is God. God is immutable, unchanging. God's infinite holiness and righteousness still stand. And will never change. And God demands that his people honor and revere him. So in terms of coming to God, approaching God in prayer, in worship. However, fear is a good and helpful thing. We should come to him out of reverence. Honoring who he is. Not haphazardly without some plan and just come and this I am not trying to subtract from Abba Father but so often we treat him like the guy next to us or our divine genie we diminish you can't diminish who God is and his glory but it sure seems like we can we don't ascribe to him what he's worth here Fear is a good thing when it comes to God and seeing God and experiencing God and coming to God. Reverence is key. Now, fear of sin. Fear can also be good in terms of how we view and deal with sin. Sin creates negative effects. Sin creates harmful effects. Sin damages and destroys us and others. Sin destroys families, careers, and lives. The effects of sin should stir within the followers of Christ 
a fear of sin. Fear can actually be a good deterrent away from sin. I often ponder as a pastor how easily it would be for me to send myself right out of this pastorate. The fear of causing harm to my Redeemer's holy name is a mighty deterrent from sin. The fear of bringing shame and disgrace upon my family and church is a mighty deterrent against sin. In my opinion, fear of sin and its effects should be as natural to the true believer as breathing or drinking water. And yet we deal with sin in such a flippant flippant way. We, we just handle it in such a way, so loosely. And it's such a devastating destroyer. And it just, it mind blows me. And you know what we do is we swing the pendulum all the way over to the grace of God. Even to the point where sin, I mean, the grace becomes a license for it. And it should not be this way. No, we should fear sin and its consequences, not the wrath of God for the child of God against sin, because we are covered by His grace, but the fear of its consequences at the peripheral level, at the parallel level, how it damages us and destroys other and harms us and divides us and destroys churches, gets churches off missions, off its mission, destroys relationships and marriages it's good to fear sin how about fear and adrenaline this is an interesting angle fear can also be a good in terms of how it can trigger adrenaline our parts or aspects of our physiology which can help us to avoid danger or defend ourselves and loved ones against attack. Have you ever had that happen in the middle of the night and it's dark in your house and everyone's asleep and you hear a big thump and all of a sudden fear comes over you? Some of us pull the covers up over our head and start praying like crazy. I go Rambo mode, you know? I don't have the physique of Rambo, but I pretend I do, and so, you know, I go down the hall, then I hear another noise, then I run back, you know. But fear can be good in terms of, in its natural way of generating adrenaline and defense, and I think that we should defend our families and our loved ones, and so it can be good as far as that goes. Now, I'd like to switch it up. I'd like to point out how fear can be dangerous and harmful. How fear can distort how we view, receive, and dispense some very, very, very important things. Let me get a drink of water and I'll call out the first one. And we'll talk about it. And these will all relate to the text. Number one, fear can distort how we see and receive God's love. God's love brings security and identity into the lives of his children. 
His love secures us in Him. His love gives us hope, peace, joy, and purpose. God's love is what gives His children the courage to live risky, death-defying lives for Him. God's love endures forever. It is unchanging. It is eternal. Nothing can remove us from His love. Nothing can alter the flow of His love. His love is like a mighty and relentless waterfall. Fear, however, can distort the way we see and receive God's love. Fear can distort as well our perception of reality. The reality is that God always loves us, but fear causes us to doubt that. We often tether our circumstances to the flow of God's love, do we not? If things are going well, we think that God loves us. If things are going badly, we think that God doesn't love us. We interpret difficult things such as pain and suffering and loss and persecution as expressions of God's hatred, dislike, or judgment. And 1 John 4.18 says that the presence of fear means that there is an absence of God's perfect love. Fear was present in the Jerusalem church, which meant that there may have been a problem with their love. They feared Saul, even after the reports and his own testimony. When Saul came to them, he shared his story, and his story corroborated with the reports. But they denied him out of fear. They showed him no love. Why? Because Saul threatened their sense of security, value, and identity. They thought to themselves, here he is, and we are Christians, and he wants to take that away from us. He wants to remove us from Jesus. What they needed to realize was something so very, very important to us. They needed to realize that their security, value, and identity were in Christ Jesus. Not in their health, not in their safety, not in their group. We need to realize the same thing. Our security, our value, our identity are in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in others, not in what we have, not in our health, not in our comfort, not in anything else. Now the belief that our security and value and identity are in Christ Jesus will revolutionize the way we think and live. That knowledge will free us from the bondage of fear, which will help us to live risky, sacrificial lives for our Lord. That knowledge will remove the fear that distorts the precious, life-giving love of our Heavenly Father. Now we have to do this. 
when God's love seems distant or unattainable, check yourself for fear. How often I've had people in counseling sessions that I just don't think that God loves me. In fact, they now have fear that God doesn't love them. And that fear has been perpetuated by some other event or some other circumstances or or something of of that nature. I mean, these Jerusalem Christians, for crying out loud, just went through a horrific persecution. In fact, they were at the epicenter of where it broke out. Even though it had been three years later, it had devastating effects on their faith. Devastating effects, creating and generating fear. Creating a distraction from their true Security and value and identity, which are secured ever, I mean, literally, eternally in Jesus Christ. Fear obstructed that. Fear blocked that. Fear caused them to cling just to them little selves and to their little safety and to their little group, locking themselves away. When we sense when we begin to believe that God doesn't love us, maybe we go through these circumstances and these things and we tether it to the love of God. Know that these things are not caused by a lack of his love to you. His love for you cannot change. It does not change. We need to know this. And when we feel that and sense that and feelings are deceptions, but when we feel it and when we sense and when we believe that there's a problem with love, look for fear. Look to your circumstances, to your experiences. What is generating fear that is frustrating and causing that wonderful love of God that pours ever flowing from him? It never ceases. It never ends. Something is causing it to divert. Something is causing you to not see it correctly or to receive it correctly. And it's fear. It's fear every time. Fear is the antithesis to God's love. Remind yourself of Romans 8. Don't take my word for it. Heaven forbid, right, Dan? Don't just take my word for it. Romans 8, 38 to 39, which says that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing! Pastor Phil said nothing because he believes it. No, Pastor Phil said it because he sees it in Scripture. Therefore, he believes it. That is a scriptural truth. When you doubt it, when it seems unattainable, go to that passage. Go to Romans 8.38. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate me. Fear can fog it up. Fear can filter The second type is fear can distort how we see and receive God's grace. All who are in Christ are in Christ by the precious grace of God through the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Grace means unmerited favor which means to be given something that you didn't deserve or even better, to be given the opposite of what you do deserve. 
Grace is an attribute of God. Grace is a miracle of God. Grace is transformational. It changes us. At the moment of our salvation, God's grace was applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We call this regeneration. And as we travel down the narrow path of true life, the grace of God is continually and perpetually applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We call this sanctification, which is the process of being molded into the image of our Lord. Grace is wondrous. Grace is mysterious. The flow of God's grace to His children is like the mighty flow of His great love. As a mighty waterfall, it continues unabated. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be damned. And it cannot be redirected. The flow of God's love, the flow of God's grace are as certain as He is certain. And we know that He is immutable and unchanging. We know that He is immovable. He is like a strong tower with an eternal foundation, unshakable. So God's grace endures as God endures. Amen? I hope this is sinking in. Grace is the means by which we are brought into God's great love. This means that grace is also essential to our sense of security and our value and our true identity. Knowing that God has chosen us according to his grace is the most freeing and liberating truth. It frees us from the belief that we must earn our way with God. It frees us from religious performance. It frees us from the fear of how others may view and value us. Grace means that we are accepted by God, which means that we do not have to pursue the acceptance of others. Tulian T. wrote, I don't know how to say his last name, He wrote, because Jesus was someone, you're free to be no one. Wow. Most people in the world are trying to be someone. Someone important. Someone who is loved. Someone who is accepted. The reason they work hard at this because is because there is a restlessness that overshadows their lives. That restlessness came at the fall. Adam and Eve were created by God for God, but when they separated themselves from him through sin, their sense of security, value, and identity were jettisoned and replaced by a sense of restlessness. Tozer described this restlessness. He said, there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with deep and fierce passion. Man has been plagued by this restlessness since the fall. He has been on a pursuit to fill the void ever since. But the grace of God in Christ Jesus fills the void. The grace of God in Christ Jesus restores our sense of security, value, and identity by restoring us back to God who is our true source for those things. Grace can bring an end 
to the restlessness. It can bring an end to the pursuit. That is part of the good news of the gospel, friends. Fear, however, can distort how we see and receive God's grace. Fear messes with our sense of security, value, and identity. Fear hinders how we, how we take in God's grace and how we apply it, enjoy it, and dispense it. The Jerusalem Christians feared Saul because they saw him as a threat to their security, value, and identity. I mentioned this. They thought that he had come to destroy those things, who they are. But what they didn't understand at that particular moment was that those things were secured in the impenetrable, invincible Son of God, Jesus Christ. As I've already mentioned, fear can be generated by our circumstances, experiences, and it can be even, and I'll add this to it, it can be generated by choices. Personal sin can bring a sense of fear which can lead to doubt about the legitimacy and availability of God's grace. People tend to think that their sin disqualifies them from receiving God's grace when in fact it qualifies them. People believe that they have to somehow clean themselves up first before they can receive such a precious gift of His grace. Some think that they have to keep themselves clean in order to keep and possess God's grace. But the Bible in all its splendor teaches explicitly that God's grace is one way. That grace is not contingent upon man's works or efforts. If grace were contingent upon our works and efforts, it would cease to be grace. Grace can only be grace if it comes from one side, people, the side of God. That is what makes it grace. Tulian T. again, he says, a restored relationship with God never happens by our climbing up to him. It happens only in Jesus who did what? Came down to us. And he says, grace is descending one way, love. a liberating truth. If we sense or believe that God's grace isn't sufficient, isn't available, isn't attainable, isn't broad enough, deep enough to cover us and to keep us, we must examine our lives and search for fear. Analyze yourself to see if fear is distorting the way that you see and receive God's ever-flowing grace. It'll be fear that's doing it. One thing I like to ponder is my own depravity. I don't like to beat myself up with it, but I like to ponder it because it assures me that grace is one way. Because when I look at myself, how am I not an atrocity to this perfect God? Every person, 
every image bearer deserves his full-fledged, annihilating wrath. Every person. Look to yourself and look for fear. And rejoice that grace is one-way love. If you're in Christ, he chose you. That's how you were able to choose him. Rejoice in that. What a marvelous thing he's done. What a marvelous thing he's done and that he had planned to do in eternity past. Wow. The third type. Fear can distort how we see and receive others. In biblical terms, humanity's unique dignity flows from our creation in God's image. Since we are God's regents on the earth, an attack on any human being is tantamount, tantamount to an attack on God himself. Thus God tells Noah after the flood, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, Genesis 9, 6 says. The justification in this instance for capital punishment was the fact that human beings were made in God's image. Murderers forfeited their right because of their attack on one of God's image bearers. This is how seriously God takes human life. Taking this one step further, since the value of human life flows from the image of God, so does human dignity. And since the image of God is shared by all people, all of us have an intrinsic dignity that is distinct from anything else about us. The supreme value of the image of God far outweighs any other consideration in determining our worth. And yet, fear can distort how we see and receive others. I'll give you some examples. Fear can keep us from seeing and receiving people as image bearers with intrinsic dignity. Fear can keep us from seeing and receiving people for their potential for change and good. And good, I should say. Fear causes us to look at them and to say there's no potential for anything there. They're just done. And it's great fear that causes us to say that. We tend to say that around election time. What drives these elections? Fear. What drives people to cannibalize the other sides? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of man? Fear can keep us from seeing others' potential for change and good. Fear can cause us to characterize others as beyond hope. That plays right into that. Oh, I know. I know Freddie. <laughs> He's so far beyond the Lord's touch. Fear can cause us to immediately classify people as threats or enemies. 
Maybe people do weird, strange, goofy, nasty things, but fear is what really drives us to classify them, to stereotype them as such. Fear can keep us from what? Loving our enemies. Fear can cause us to seclude ourselves, to withdraw from others. Fear can cause us to do something horrible, and that is to disregard evangelism. Disregard the Great Commission. Yes. Fear can cause us to withhold grace from others. Fear can cause us to withhold forgiveness and mercy from others. Fear can cause us to reject the legitimacy of one's claims and thus reject them. Do you see it in verse 26? It's right there. Every one of those examples. That fear that they had caused every one of those ten things to happen. Because of fear, the Jerusalem Christians crossed each of those lines. What, million dollar question, what were they trying to protect? What could Saul take from them? He could take away their physical freedom. He could take away their ability to gather for learning and fellowship. He could take away their homes and possessions. He could take away their physical health through scourgings and beatings. He could take away their physical life. All of these things are important. But what did Jesus say about following him? And you will be hated for my namesake. Matt 10, 33. If the world persecuted me, it will persecute you. John 15, 20. In this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Ooh. Anyone who puts his own life and loved ones ahead of me, what? Cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. The cost of discipleship is great. The cost of discipleship of following Jesus requires that we would be willing to give up physical freedom and learning and fellowship for a season and our homes and possessions and our physical health and our physical life and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. But what gets in the way? Fear! Fear gets in the way. What could Saul not take away from them? You ready? He could not take away the love of God. Uh, but my family, uh, 
He could not take away the grace of God. He could not take away the promises of God. He could not take away the joy of God. He could not take away their hope, provided that it was in Jesus. He could not take away the Holy Spirit. He could not take away the true source of their security, value, and identity, which are, as I said, locked away for all eternity in Christ Jesus the Lord. If you boil it all down, Saul had some pretty limited access, friends. He could put his hands on that which is earthly and temporal, but he could not put his hands on that which comes from heaven. I'd like to submit to you now that the things that come from heaven are worth infinitely more than those that come from this earth. Now here's the trick. Fear and unwillingness to let go of the temporal, the things of this earth, reveal a lot about us. A lot. A lot about these Christians. What does it reveal about us? It reveals that our hope has been misplaced. I can't, I've got to protect what I have. I've got to protect who I am. I've got to protect those around me. Why? Probably because your hope is in those things and those people instead of being in Christ. Fear and unwillingness to let go of the temporal reveals that we are drawing our sense of security, value, and identity from the wrong source. I can't let the stuff go. I'm wrapped up in it instead of being wrapped up in the Lord. My stuff defines who I am. Therefore, I have to guard it with every fiber of my brain. My physique, my body, my clothing, my, 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 my fashion, these things, they, that, that is who I am. I've got to guard these things. This little group of people, I've got to guard them. They give me that sense of value, security, and identity. If you're not willing to let go of the temporal for the things of heaven, then your security, value, and identity are, have been completely misplaced. What else does it reveal? Fear and unwillingness to let go of the temporal reveals that we value the things of earth more than the things of heaven. That's got to be one of the great struggles of the Christian. We've got all this stuff around us, especially in this nation of plenty. Men at work shouldn't have wrote that song about Australia. They don't know jack about the States. We've got way more plenty. I come from a land down under, land of plenty, blah, 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 Vegemite sandwich. Now just come here and get a fat burger and it's over. I mean, just think of the amenities and the, and the endless supply and the consumerism and all the things. How attached to these things do we become? How we find our value and security and identity in these things. You know, I, I know a guy who makes $3,000 a month and just bought a $75,000 car. I'm like doing the math. Okay, if I 
had a, could buy a $75,000 car, I'd probably have to make about 200 grand a year. $3,000 a month, that's $36,000. The car cost 2.2 times more than your annual salary. I wonder if this guy's got an identity problem. Oh, he does. Because the car defines who he is or who he's striving to be. So much to the point that he has to buy something that he can't afford that he shouldn't buy to build up his image. The car is a rolling statue of Nebuchadnezzar. To my glory! And we, we shake our heads and go, what was he thinking? What are we thinking? Where have we misplaced in the things, the temporal things of this world? Where have we put and ascribed too much identity, security, and value into? Because those things make us certain of ourselves and make us feel good about ourselves. And, and we're not drawing from the ultimate source, Christ. Maybe we don't buy $75,000 cars. But there are other ways that we do it. Maybe some of us do buy those cars. I'd like a ride in it before you take it back. <laughs> Just one. Just All right, take it back. Can I borrow it for a week? Yeah. This flesh, you know, flesh, it just keeps coming. Just, just doesn't stop. Fear and unwillingness to let go of the temporal reveals our idolatry. Have you ever heard someone say, I can't imagine living without this person? You know what that is? That's the same thing as worshiping a little stone doll. My life would end if that person was gone. You have exalted that person above the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't imagine not having my stuff. I can't, I, I, I've got to protect the people and the stuff and, and these things. You have fashioned idols out of them if you've exalted them to the level where you believe you cannot exist without them. That's the reality. How many times have you heard people say that? I can't imagine. I don't know what I would do. I would, I'd be so like, she completes me. Ah! Have you married her yet? Yeah, not yet. You'll find out how she doesn't complete you in about 2.4 years. That's the average on how long a marriage lasts. 2.4 years be going, she doesn't complete me. I got to find one that does. Restlessness of the fall. Fear and unwillingness to let go of the temporal reveals our idolatry. What we're clinging to, what we've taken. And to be honest with you, these things can be good things. They're blessings from the Lord. And yet we take them and exalt them up to this level where we can't imagine our existence without them. And the heart of the Christian should say continually, I can't imagine my existence without Jesus. Not the crap, not the stuff, not the car, not even my spouse. I love her. She's a blessing. Woo! Praise the Lord. Christ is truly our all in all. If Christ is truly 
our hope. If Christ is truly the source of our security, value, and identity, we should be willing to let go of the things of this earth for the sake of our King. We should be willing to let go of our freedom. We should be willing to let go of our safety. We should be willing to let go of our possessions. We should be willing to let go of our money. We should be willing to let go of our comfort. We should be willing to take a chance on people. To see them and to receive them in a different way. We should not allow fear to disturb malign or cause us to view people in a way that God doesn't view them. They're image bearers. In our next section of study, we will see how one guy from the Jerusalem church shirked the status quo and met with Saul to listen to his story. We're going to meet one man who was secured enough in Christ to take a chance. But for now, may we live risky, daring, sacrificial, evangelistic lives to the glory of our Lord. How? Because he is our all in all. He is our security, our value, our identity. We do not have to fear men. We do not have to fear anything else in this world. Living risky, daring, sacrificial, evangelistic lives to the glory of God is what he's called us to do. That, it's just that plain. That is what it means to carry our cross daily. And may the perfect love of our heavenly Father dwell in us richly and cast out all our fear so that we may see and receive more of his love and more of his grace and so that we may see and receive others. May we share the love and grace of God with them. Father, thank you for Verse 26, been wrestling with it all week, trying to understand their fear and really being able to relate to it and yet seeing the error three years later. I suppose it would be different the day after, but fear is fear. And where fear is, your perfect love isn't. God, you have called us to take up our crosses and to live for you, secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ, where it is locked away for all eternity. May he be our all in all. May he always be the source of our security, our value, our identity. God, if we can get that today 
if we can understand that and believe that, we will live revolutionary lives for you. Lives of radical giving. Lives of radical risk. Lives, oh my goodness, of just crazy, nasty, overflowing, life-changing joy. That's what we need. Oh, God, solidify these truths. Tomorrow, we will stray. Actually, at 1 o'clock today, we will probably begin to seek to find our all in all and everything else. Guard us, protect us, remind us. Help us, Jesus. And Father, as we celebrate communion together, Lord, I pray that that would just be the stamp on this sermon, the stamp on the gospel today. Recognizing and remembering the finished work of your son, which makes it all possible. Oh, Jesus, what you've done. Your finished work. Oh. How marvelous it is. May we reflect on it. May we also take a little bit of time just to reflect on the areas of fear that are in our lives. There are areas. May your perfect love cast it out. Cause us to live differently. May we also, Lord, during this time, bring sacrificially to you, God. Give our best gift, our best gifts to you. What a way to show that our identity and security and value is in you to give freely. Oh, what a spectacular way we can express that each week. Bless this time, Lord Jesus. May we enjoy you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.